0: Turn, if you would, to the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew. I've kind of lost my voice, but we'll make it through anyway. A couple of weeks ago, we started chapter six. Chapter six has a pattern at the beginning of it. Chapter five, the end of it, dealt with a lot of sins and the fact that we look at sin as an external only activity whereas christ and god look at sin as a condition of the heart we saw things like you should not commit adultery well of course you shouldn't commit adultery but christ says if you've lusted after a woman you have already committed adultery in your heart so the end of chapter five were the bad things and how they are reflected in our heart condition. Chapter 6 begins with a series of good things that can be done for the wrong reasons if we're doing them just to impress other people. We started with giving. When you give, don't let people know what you're doing. And then last Sunday we started the discussion about prayer. When you pray, don't stand on the street corner so that everybody can see you. Rather, go hide in your closet and pray, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, we discussed the fact that there are public prayers, and that's okay. But if that is all the praying that you do is when you know somebody else will see it, You're doing it in order to be seen by other people, and you will have a reward. But it will be the reward of people. They'll think, oh, that person's a great spiritual person because he's praying. But you will not receive a reward from God. But if you do it in secret, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And we had a discussion about what that reward looks like. And sometimes I'm not sure what that looks like. We know that there is a heavenly reward, but I would contend there's probably an earthly reward to it also. So we made it through the beginning of the section on prayer, and then he gets to the point of don't pray that way, but rather pray this way. And he began what is usually referred to as the Lord's Prayer. It is sometimes called the model prayer or the disciples' prayer. I'll just be old-fashioned and call it the Lord's Prayer. So we started our way through it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we made it about halfway through that, so we're going to start kind of in the middle, but we'll get a running start into it. Because we look at these things and we're asking ourselves, why are we asking for this? When Jesus says, pray like this, why do we pray like this? Why do we pray, thy kingdom come? I mean, is it going to come when he's good and ready? What is my prayer going to do ...to affect the kingdom coming. But we discussed the fact that what the prayer is demonstrating... ...is our desire that the kingdom would come. You think, well, we all desire that. Do we really? I mean, do we really want the kingdom to come right now? Do we want to acknowledge Christ as our king right now? Or do we want to live our own lives of doing our own things and sometime in the future when I've done all the things that I want to do, then I want Christ's kingdom to come? Or am I willing to live a life of the kingdom right now? That's what the prayer is. The prayer is thy kingdom come in my life right now. And it shows a condition of the heart that welcomes, welcomes the sovereignty of God as the sovereign over my individual life. And the question is, do we really want that? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, we had a discussion about God's will and his sovereign will, which is that which is going to be done, and his moral will, which is that which he Wants us to do, but we oftentimes say, No, I'm gonna go do something else. When we pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're telling Him is, I want to do what you want me to do. And once again, sometimes we go, Well, that sounds real good, I'll do that next week, but this week. I've got a few things on my list that may be on the edge of your list and we'll get them out of the way. Now, we don't say that. We just act like that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pick up in verse 11 for today's lesson. Give us this day our daily bread. That sounds simple enough. Today I'm going to be hungry... Today, I'm going to need food. What's the problem? I mean, what he's telling us is that we need to ask God for our provision. We need to acknowledge the fact that when we sit down to eat, God has provided that food. Do you all remember the movie Shenandoah, you know, with Jimmy Stewart and his wife has died? And he sits down at the dinner table, and he had promised his wife they were going to say the blessing at every meal. And he starts blessing, and he starts praying, thank you for this food, but I don't know why, because we were the ones that worked to earn it. <laughs> That's his prayer. Of course, I'm sure I've told you this is such a fabulous story. My father and mother spent six months in northern England. My dad filled in as the interim pastor of this small Baptist church. So every Sunday, they'd been invited over to this elderly lady's house for lunch. So when we went to visit them, we went over to this elderly lady's house for lunch. It was the elderly lady, her daughter, son-in-law. And my mother leaned over and says, watch out for the prayer. (laughs) And I said, okay. So we have this food, you know, this meal in front of us. I decided what she did is she cooked for the whole week and just put it all on the table. And then whatever's left, that's what she ate for the rest of the week. So we hold hands. We're going to say the prayer. Rub-a-dub-dub. Thank you for this grub. <laughs> I'm assuming she got it from her husband and just kept doing it. God wants us to acknowledge our need for him. But Wait. As Jimmy Stewart says, I went to work this week to earn the money to get that food, to put it on the table. What does God have to do with it? Well, the Old Testament tells us very clearly, it is God who gives you the strength to do the work, to earn the food, to provide for you and the needs of your family. Here's the question. Do we really believe that? Yes.
1: Uh-huh. But it's God who's given them the body, the mind, the ability to
0: do everything they've hmm. done. All they've merely done was use the tools that God has given them. We've used the tools that God has given us to provide. And there's the question. Do I acknowledge that the meal that I'm going to eat this afternoon is in fact given to me by the gracious pleasure of God? But notice what it also says. Give us this day our daily bread. (laughs) Think back, if you will, to the Jews. They've left Egypt. They've had a small problem with the golden calf. They get hungry. And like all of us do, we start cursing our leaders and our God for not providing us with food. And God says, no problem. Here comes the food. And in the morning they come out and there's this flaky stuff on the ground. And they say, what's that? Which is loosely translated manna. Okay? And then these quail come through and they just start whacking them. And they eat quail and they eat manna. But you know what? How do I know that God is going to provide tomorrow's meal? So what am I going to do? I gather up the manna that I need. I gather up the quail that I need. And I gather up some more for tomorrow. Even though he had told them, don't do that. And tomorrow, they open that jar of manna, and it stinks. It has turned rotten because they did not trust in God. Now, it's interesting. On the sixth day, they were told to save two days' worth, because the next day was the Sabbath. And guess what? On the seventh day, they opened up that pot, and it was as fresh as could be. Why? Because they were doing what God told them to do. Give us this day our daily bread. The quote I heard years ago, how much money, how much food do you have to have before you're willing to live by faith? Think about that for a while. Proverbs, chapter 30, verse 8. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What the writer of that proverb is telling us is if I have too much stuff I begin to think that I'm independent of God I don't need God I've got money in my bank I've got food on my table to last me for a long time if I need it I can go buy it I don't need God the flip side of it is if I have nothing then I run the risk of going and stealing it and profaning the name of God by doing that. Well, I would contend that most of us... There are lots of poor people in the world, okay? But most of us are probably closer to this end over here where our problem is not that we don't have anything. Our problem is that we have so much we no longer think we need to ask God for our daily bread. We live a life where we think we are independent of God. And God wants us to pray, God, I am dependent upon you for everything in my life. We're talking about food here, but we're also acknowledging the fact that this is a model prayer. It is a prayer that is to teach us how to pray. What is it teaching us? It's teaching us to ask God for what we need. But to only ask God for what we need now. And not, God, give me a barn full so I never have to come back to you. Give me a Costco full of stuff in my backyard, and I will be set for life. And God says, I don't want you living that way. So when we talk about food, when we talk about health, when we talk about time, when we talk about fill in the blank with whatever it is that you and I ask for from God, remember he wants us to acknowledge our dependence upon him and he wants us to continue to acknowledge our dependence upon him and he's not particularly interested in us getting to the point where we believe we are autonomous human beings that can live our lives on our own. Self-sufficiency is probably a sin if we begin to think That we are self-sufficient apart from God. What the scripture teaches us is that the next breath in your lungs is a gift from God. The prayer is teaching us to acknowledge that. But I don't want to acknowledge that. I don't want to be dependent on anybody else. I want to be free. And God says no aren't you're not going to be and you shouldn't want to be you are dependent upon God now I could also make a long discussion but I'm not going to do it the reality is none of us are truly independent we are dependent upon each other I mean God gave us the church Because he knew that you would probably be a lousy Christian by yourself. (laughs) You would be. You need somebody to stand beside you when things are going bad. You need someone to whack you up the side of the head when you're being bad. That's just what we need. Yet we want to believe that we are independent human beings. (laughs) I try to avoid politics like the plague, but I just think this is very humorous. You get states like North Dakota, who, if you ask them, we're the most independent people in the world, and they receive more federal dollars per capita than any state of the union. <laughs> but I won't go there. It's a facade we put up of independence. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, As we have forgiven our debtors. What does yours say, Van? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We see the word debt and we start thinking money, right? Okay. I owe the bank some money. I should pay them. No, I should forgive them. I mean, they should forgive me. They should just forgive my debt. We're off the hook. But it's not really talking about money. What it's talking about is that when I do something wrong, I have a, to you, I have accumulated a debt because I owe something because of that wrong that has been inflicted upon me. And it works both ways. You wrong me. I wrong you. You owe me. I owe you. And guess what he tells us to do? Forget about it. Forgive us our trespasses, our debts, as you have forgiven us. Huh? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Yes. Now, this gets us into a lot of interesting discussions. The reason I know that is we had the interesting discussion about, I don't know, ten lessons ago. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Wait a minute. Are you saying that if I am not merciful, God is going to zap me? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe what is the relationship between me forgiving you and God forgiving me? Let's cheat and skip ahead a couple of verses. okay? because I envision Jesus talking through this. He's saying, here's the model prayer. And he says the last sentence and he goes, you know, let me tell you about that verse. I just told you he didn't call it a verse that sentence. I just told you. And he says in verse 14, For if we forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And here comes the terrifying sentence. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In one sense, I don't actually need to explain this. It is very clear. We just hate it. Because the first thing you do is you raise your hand and you go, Yeah, but what about grace? Isn't it all grace? Why in the world is my forgiveness, me being forgiven, contingent on me forgiving other people? If you remember, when we talked about uh, blessed are the merciful, we jumped ahead to chapter 18. And we won't do it again, because we're going to do it again when we get to chapter 18. But we had a parable. One of the disciples comes to Jesus and said, How often should I forgive somebody? Seven times? The disciple thought he was being very magnanimous. Somebody wronged me seven times, and I forgave them every time. Now, you get into the discussion of why are you keeping score, but that's a whole different discussion. But Jesus says, no, not seven times, seven times seven. Now, if you look at the way Jews thought about numbers, seven was kind of the perfect number, and seven times seven is just some huge... You can't count that high. Okay? If you're keeping track of how many times you've forgiven somebody... Well, you haven't forgiven them. But he tells the story. And once again, we did this 10 weeks ago, and we're going to do it sometime in the future, so we'll go through it pretty fast. The servant owes his master a bazillion dollars. Loose translation, but that's about what it was. He owed him more money than he could ever pay. And the master says, to prison with you. Good old-fashioned debtor's prison. And he goes, oh, I can't. Please, please forgive me. Give me time. I'll pay it off. Please have mercy on me. And the master says, okay, I'll have mercy on you. I forgive the debt. Off the hook. The servant goes out, and here's another servant who comes. And that servant owes the first servant a couple of bucks. And he says, where's my money? And the second servant says, I don't have it. Give me till Tuesday. No, to prison with you. And the master heard about this. And the master calls in the first servant and says, I forgave you a bazillion dollars. And you won't forgive this person two bucks? You Remember I said your debt is forgiven? Forget all of that. It's all back on the books. You're going to jail until you pay every penny. The question is not where does mercy begin? Mercy begins with the Master. God forgave us. Let's just start right there. God forgave us. That's not a debate. The debate is do I know it? Do I realize it? Do I recognize it? Did it, did it really happen? And how do we know that? When I go to someone else who has offended me, and they go, I'm sorry, and you say, I forgive you. Why? Because here is what God has forgiven you. I could stand on a few chairs, and here is how that person has offended you. And if you can't forgive that, It is a demonstration that you have not acknowledged the depth, the huge debt that God has forgiven you. You haven't done it. The odds are, I hate to say this, the odds are you've never been saved because you still kind of think God's, kind of privileged to have me on his side. You know? That guy over there, he's wretched. Me? I'm pretty good. God put me on his team. I'm cool, aren't I? You? You're a wretch. And that's the way we think. And as long as we think that, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who acknowledge they cannot do it on their own. No, I'm not pointing at you directly. (laughs) Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have acknowledged that they can't do it on their own. And the question is, when we have received the grace and mercy of God, how do we then go out and interact with other people around us? The reality is... The other people are going to mess up to us and we're going to mess up to them because we're all sinners trying through the grace of God, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to do what God would have us to do. And what he tells us to do is to show them the grace and mercy that he has abundantly displayed toward us. Yes. I'd be curious, I wonder if you could relate that to a criminal justice system. I'm going to do that. His question is, how does that relate to the criminal justice system? When I commit a sin, now let's back up and let's make it even worse, okay? Somebody murders one of my daughters. Okay, I will tell you right now, I'm pretty ticked off. That's putting it mildly. I am angry. The guy is arrested. He is sentenced, and he is sent to prison. While he's in prison, he meets some friends of Jerry's who share the gospel with him, and he becomes a believer. He, comes, he calls me and says, I want to talk to you. I drive down there. He's on one side of the glass wall. I'm on the other side of the glass wall. And he says, I have found Christ. He has forgiven me of my sins. He has shown me that I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? At that point, are you ready for this? At that point, Christ says, I have to forgive him from the heart. Now, does that mean I say, okay, you should get out of prison today? No. His criminal activity, his sin in this case, has consequences that he has to fulfill. So I can forgive him, hopefully from the heart. I don't want to be in this situation, but I'll hope without thinking that the consequences of that sin have to be removed. Now, the reason I was going to bring this up is in light of a lot of activities that are going on in our world right now. I read an article a week or two ago about why do pedophiles have such success in churches. And one of the reasons, not the top, but one of the reasons, was we believe too much in grace. Somebody does something bad, they say they're sorry, we forgive them, and we send them to the next church to work with kids again. Okay? Let me tell you what ought to happen they are confronted, they confess their sins. They ask for forgiveness. We forgive them, and we call the police and send them to prison. That's what ought to happen. The government exists to punish evildoers. Go to Romans. That's what we're told. This person is an evildoer. Our animosity toward them may need to dissipate as we demonstrate God's forgiveness to them, but the consequences are still there. If you are a pastor and you've done something horrible, yes, you can ask for forgiveness, you can get repentance, and you can still belong to the church if you're not in prison. You can still belong to the church. That doesn't necessarily mean you're allowed to be the pastor. That is a different calling. So don't say... Grace says I have to act like there's no consequences. It is interesting in my mind, if you start looking at how God works, you know, you come to me and ask for forgiveness. I hope you're sincere. I trust you're sincere. I pray that you're sincere. The reality is I don't know if you're sincere. God does. That's why God has said certain activities forgive or not, you're going to jail, you're going to prison, you're going to, in the Old Testament, you're going to get stoned. There are consequences of these actions. Would it be better if those people repented? Yes. Do we need to forgive them if they do? Yes. Do we still carry out the judgment? Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. If they have come out of prison first, huh? We have laws in place. They're not to be. <clears throat> Her comment is even if they go to prison as a pedophile, when they get out, they come to the church. I mean, I heard, you know, a story of a church in our area, and the guy shows up on Sunday morning, and there is a man standing there to escort him through the whole day, walks him back to the parking lot, because we want him to come to church. We want him to be under the gospel, but that doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the issues. Somebody had a hand back here?
1: Says they're gonna kill your daughter. Uh huh. So what do you do? You go to the authorities. you go to the FBI, you go to the detective, and they do nothing. But you know that person's gonna kill your
0: daughter.
1: Uh huh. What do you
0: do? <laughs> can, can, can I put off my teacher's hat and, and put on my father's hat and get out my twelve gauge shotgun? The reality is, all of this is an interesting discussion, and I, and it needs to be done. The reality, though, is that nobody's probably going to kill one of my daughters this week. But somebody may offend me this week. Somebody may lie to me this week. Somebody may cheat me. Somebody may not give me the... Respect that I think that I am owed. Somebody may cut me off in traffic. All of these little things. And what do we do? We make obscene gestures at them. We use words that we don't use in church. And we wish their eternal damnation. And here's my question. In doing so, are we demonstrating the grace and the mercy that God has bestowed upon us. Yes, Jerry. i got to say something. Do. Well, I've been doing that for about 14
1: years the jail. And what hurts me so much is when the men, there's good and bad. And there always is going to be. We have 14,000 volunteers going into the system in Texas. Many people do see Jesus? Mm-hmm. I see them when they come out. They try as hard as they can, and that cross is still on their back. Mm-hmm. And they get so frustrated because, excuse me, I've been to churches all over the city. There are some churches that don't care. There are some churches that don't even answer my phone calls. Now I know I'm really cutting to the bone <laughs> here, but I got to tell you, I've seen it, I've seen it too often, and I've cried over some of the guys because I've known them personally. Excuse me if I offended anybody. This church is wonderful. I have been involved with a, a particular ministry. No. The sex offender ministry, Mm -hmm. and I'm very well aware of everything. I will also add the parole office has so many strict, um, um, strict. Rules
0: and regulations.
1: Living here, they've got to have a map to do this. If a sex offender comes in here, he has to have a chaperone. There are about five churches in the city who will do that. Christ Chapel is one. As far as I know, we don't have any sex offenders here. Have I said enough?
0: I'm. I'm doing When we tell God, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven others, we're putting it on the line. We're saying that I'm going to forgive people like you have forgiven me. I've told you in here before, there's a, a book, The Sunflower or something, Um, written by a Jewish guy. He was in a concentration camp, but he had some useful skills, so he was being used for labor. And a SS officer called him in and was dying. And he wanted this Jew, as a Jew, to forgive him. And he wouldn't do it. This is the author of the book. He said, I wouldn't do it. And he commented on the fact that Jews, I mean that Christians in our belief system, Christians have an obligation to forgive people. According to him, Jews have no such obligation. They don't. What's interesting about the book is there's a little the, the little book is at the beginning, and then depending which copy of it you pick up, there's all these essays by famous people spiritual leaders, you know, around the world, commenting about the comments, about the story itself. But I would agree with him. As horrible as it may seem to you at times, we as believers have an obligation to forgive those who seek repentance and seek our forgiveness. It does not mean that we remove the consequences It doesn't mean that we do not put up the necessary barriers to ensure that the crime, the incident, does not occur again. You don't have to be best friends with somebody who annoys you continually just because they keep asking for forgiveness. But you do have to forgive them. Why? Because we, at some point in time, stood in need of, of the infinite forgiveness of God for the sins that we had committed against him, and he forgave us. But what's even more than that, tomorrow I'm going to stand in need of forgiveness again, and the next day I'm going to stand in need of forgiveness again, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And the amazing thing is that not only do I need to ask God's forgiveness, but I also need to ask your forgiveness at different times. And while we're talking about us and God, and when we forgive others, God forgives us, the reality is that God also has created a world in such that when I forgive you, when I offer you mercy and grace, you are more likely to offer me mercy and grace. And trust me, you're going to need it. We all know people who don't forgive anyone anything. And as a general rule, they're miserable people. As a general rule. They may be rich. They may have gotten ahead in the world. They may have pushed everybody out of their way to get their gold because they are driven. But they're full of bitterness and anger, and they can't let it go. God can. God can take care of it. But that's a whole different issue. Yes. Not much. <laughs> Can I fly in, friends? Go ahead. Are you that we only have to forgive those who ask? Le- le- uh, his-, his question is, do we only have to forgive those who ask? <coughs> I'll start there. <laughs> okay? The re- hmm? His qu- comment was, do we only have to forgive those who ask to be forgiven? And my response was, we'll start there. The reality is, though, if we know they've sinned and God knows they've sinned, it behooves me to show mercy and grace to them regardless of their response to us. Now, I would think about the question, though, harder. Okay, If they have no interest, then it's hard to forgive them. Just working out the dynamics of the relationship. But if you're letting your non-forgiveness, your bitterness, swell up inside of you, then you're just poisoning your own life. Okay? This particularly happens when you see the person that you're angry against, and they're dead. Okay? They're dead. It was your father, and he abused you. He attacked you and he died and you are angry you need to forgive him because you need to deal with the reality of your life and not let that anger continue on to the next generation. Since I live that life you're talking about, I went to a Catholic boy school here in town. Huh? And
1: half the teachers there were sex offenders. The other half beat on you most of the time.
0: His observation is that he grew up at a school of another denomination, <coughs> and he was either the, half, half the teachers were sex offenders and the other half just beat him regularly. And his observation is we do forgive, but that doesn't mean we have to forget. Sometimes in our minds, we've linked those together so tightly that we think that if I act like you sinned in the past, then. I haven't really forgiven you. Forgiveness is a condition of our heart toward the other people, and we need to forgive them, but we still may not let them around our children. Okay? Somebody, go ahead. for observations about people that are falsely accused, okay? Number one, I'm not sure how big that group is. I know it exists, but I don't know how big that group is. Secondly, that's why we have a legal system. That's why the scripture says that in the Old Testament, you don't condemn people on one witness. You have multiple witnesses. You have a process for determining what really happened, and that's your goal. Now, we work through that system. Is that system No, because that system is built on sinful human beings. Is that system better than the alternatives? Probably. Okay? So, yes, it is a very hard case. The question, once again, though, is, as you as an individual, are you going to forgive these people, whether they're accused or false? I mean, you're called to forgive them. Okay? And then we hope (laughs) that the legal system works out the kings, knowing that the legal system is full of sinful human beings. Okay? Did somebody else have a question back here? You can see that this is a hot topic. Why is it a hot topic? First off, there's a group of people that I just don't want to forgive. I mean, that's the bottom line, right? They did me wrong, and I'm gonna do them wrong every opportunity that I get there's no place in the Christian life for that attitude there just isn't let's just lay it on the table there is no place in the Christian life for that attitude does that mean that it is easy no there's no promise in the scripture that it's going to be easy to forgive other people How do we learn to forgive other people? Well, the second point is practice. The first point is to continue to realize what God has forgiven you. No, you weren't the star pupil, and God chose you because you were the star pupil. No, you weren't the best looking, and God chose you because you were the best looking. He didn't choose you because you were the all-star. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at Moses at the end of his life when he's talking to the nation of Israel, he tells them, y'all are not the best nation on the planet. Y'all are grumblers. Y'all complain. There's not more of you than other people. You're not tougher. You're none of those things. God chose you because he had made a promise to Abraham. He had made a promise to Abraham that you would be a called people. Question. Why did God save you? If you can think of a reason, if you can think of a reason that in any form or fashion involves you, you need to go think about it some more. You need to go read the first, I don't know, three or four chapters of the book of Romans. And if at the end of it, you still think you need to go read it again and again and again until you realize that you have been saved by grace alone and it had nothing to do with your actions. And when you begin to to have that seep into your soul, when that person cuts you off in traffic, you're going to go, so? Really? So? When that friend says something spiteful to you, you're going to go, gosh, just think of the things I used to say against God. And God forgave me every one of them. Yes? Right. Yeah. Her comment was sometimes it helps to forgive other people if you know where they're coming from, and that's true. You know, I spend a lot of my time at work explaining to other people that no, they don't really hate you; they just don't think about you. Okay. <laughs> I mean, really. Right. You know where they come from. I mean, if you know that someone... I mean, I find it fascinating in this class. I'll just throw this in. Because you all come from a huge variety of different backgrounds. And I will sit up here and say, you know, you have to obey the law of God. And you came from a legalistic church. And you go, oh, here's this happening again. I mean, and and I have to be sensitive to that. I have to be sensitive to where people are coming from. And not expect more from them than they at their current level of grace can handle. And so you're right. All of this is right. But we need to learn to forgive. (sighs) We made it through three verses. (laughs) We didn't even get into leading into temptation. That's the hard one.
1: <laughs>
0: Mike says he forgives me. Why do we pray the sermon on the, the the Lord's prayer? It is the model. This is how we're supposed to pray. Notice that it is not about asking God for a larger TV set. Nothing wrong with a larger TV set. What it's about is acknowledging our place before God. And asking God to do his will, to live his life through us. The prayer, we have this long discussion. You know, does prayer affect God? Long discussion. But the scripture tells us it does. How can it do that? Long discussion. But the flip side of it is that prayer affects us. It leads us to want God's will in our life. And trust me, that's more important than you can imagine. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that we would forgive those around us. I pray, Lord, that today, when we are offended, when somebody does something to us that we do not like, that we will look to you and not at them. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.